All right, so how's everyone doing? All right. Nothing like Wednesday night, right? Meeting in the middle of the week, get us through the rest of the week until, until Sunday. Just being encouraged, and so good worship and good time. Excited about spending time in communion, but we're going to get into the Word right now. We're starting a new book, as Pastor Gene said, the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be calling these studies uh, The Pilgrim's Precepts, as we'll uh, learn tonight as we uh, take an introduction to the, uh, the, the book of First Peter, introduction to what it is to be a pilgrim and, and, and who Peter is and kind of what the background is in, in which is written, because as we're going to see, it's really relevant to where we are today um, in, in this world. As we walk with the Lord, we're going to see not a lot changes. There's still a lot of sin, a lot of people who don't like Christians, uh, circumstances and situations that we have to deal with as believers, and the Lord's grace is sufficient. His word is real, and and we can come to it as we uh, walk with the Lord. And so let's begin with prayer. And then we'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 1. So Lord, thank you so much for your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you're the one, Lord, who teaches us. Lord, while you used Peter, Lord, you spoke through him. And Lord, your words never change. They're true yesterday, today, and forever. They're relevant today, just as they were, Lord, in the first century. And Lord, our prayer is that you would take these things, Lord, and apply them to our life, that you would take the scriptures and the things that are read, Lord, and you would speak to us personally. Lord, there's a lot of stuff going on, Lord, in our hearts that, um, Lord, that only you know, and that only, Lord, that you can truly deal with. And so, Lord, we just submit our hearts to you and ask that you would do a, a great work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 25, 25 says, as cold water to a weary soul... So, so is good news from a faraway country. No doubt Peter's audience, many of them were Jews, would have experienced the truth of this proverb as they received this letter written personally to them by the Apostle Peter. You see, the Christians, or as we're going to see Peter calls them, pilgrims who are dispersed throughout the entire area of Asia Minor, they were experiencing some pretty tough trials, temptations, and tests for being Christians, for walking with the Lord. Here's a couple, just to name a few. First of all, they were scattered from their homeland and living as foreigners. And so they were, most of them were probably from the area of Judea, but because of persecution, probably at the time of Stephen, they were scattered. They were, they were ran out of their homeland, such as like, you know, we see today with ISIS and, and the, the believers that were fleeing for their lives, they were fleeing for their lives. And they ended up in this area where they were foreigners. They were in a different culture around different people, left everything they had back back uh, where they were, and now they're walking with the Lord still. They're rejected by men. We see that in chapter 2, verse 4. They were mocked and spoken evil of because of their faith. We see that in chapter 4, verse 4. And they were experiencing both emotional and physical persecution, and they would continue to experience it. And Peter's going to remind them, hey, guys, it's not going to get any easier, but it, it might get worse. So from an outside perspective, they would have been considered having it pretty bad, Right? They weren't living the best life now, if you, know, if you know what I mean. They were in the refiner's furnace, as you call it, as the Lord was working in their life to change them and transform them. Now, in the midst of this troublesome time, God used Peter to write to these believers to encourage them. What a neat thing. What a, you know, an amazing thing it must have been to receive this letter from Peter. And here they were, they were trying to make it, you know, just walk with the Lord. And here's this letter from Peter, and the Lord spoke specifically to him. You know, it's, it's always encouraging for a, 
you know, us as believers to encourage one another, especially as we wait on the Lord and have times of prophecy. The Lord still does that today. Oftentimes, he'll give somebody a word for you or, or maybe a scripture that someone has in their heart is for you. So if you have a scripture in your heart, maybe for somebody, share it. Make sure you share it. That's all, what, that's all Peter did. You know, his was a book, you know, four chapters or five chapters. But, you know, there's no difference between a verse, a word, and a book. It was encouraging, and it was able to be used by the Lord as, as cold water to their weary soul to continue to run the race and to press forward in their pilgrimage. Peter is going to remind these believers in the midst of this troublesome time to rejoice and seize the moment in their trial. Rejoice and seize the moment? Really? Is that what he writes about? Yes. And Peter's going to tell them that they can rejoice and seize the moment. Peter's going to remind us that regardless of whatever situation or circumstance we find ourselves in, we can have joy. Now, this is beyond our human understanding. We think, really? Come on, really? Well, yeah, it's spiritual. It comes from the Lord. The Lord's ways are beyond our ways, and he can give us this joy even in the midst of troublesome times, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. Peter's going to tell us the way, first of all, to have that is by taking our eyes off the things that perish, this earth, and place them on God's grace and, and also on his future glory. That's going to be revealed. Second, Peter's going to remind us in this letter to seize the moment. You see, Peter's going to teach us that the situation that we're in is, can be used by God to witness to the world around us. We all know that when someone's different, they get attention, right? And they stand out. And that's exactly what was going on to the Christians there in Asia Minor. They were different. They stood out, and people didn't like them, and that even stood out even more. But yet Peter is going to remind them, hey, guys, in the midst of this persecution, this temptation, this discouragement, God can work through your life in an amazing way. He's going to tell them to walk in the Spirit and represent Christ. You and I are going to be warned to respond to persecution, not with reviling back, but to walk with the Lord and to respond as Christ did. We're going to learn what it means to walk as a Christian in the midst of a morally decaying world. And that's exactly what was going, going on in, in Asia Minor, in the Roman Empire. There was, you know, marriage was a joke in, in the Roman Empire. You know, there was um, sin and idolatry. But yet Peter's going to write to these believers and teach them what it is to be an employee at work. What it is to have a faithful ministry. What it is to have a godly marriage and what it is to raise a godly family. And so, you know, regardless of what's going on around us, there are still principles that you and I need to follow. And as we're going to see from verse 2, it's through the Spirit of God that we have obedience to the Lord in the midst of these troublesome times. And so Peter's going to kind of bring it home and say, hey, yeah, you don't get off the hook just because times are hard. The Lord wants to use you to obey his word so the rest of the world can see what he's going to do in your life. So no doubt this letter was an encouragement and motivated the believers to press forward in their walk with the Lord. And it's my prayer that as we go through this letter together, that you and I will be encouraged to press forward in our journey with the Lord. You see, because as pilgrims, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they want us to give up. They want us to give up. They want us to throw in the towel. But as Spurgeon writes, we can't. I read this yesterday in my devotion. It was really encouraging in light of the study. Here's what Spurgeon said. He said, he only is a true conqueror and shall be crowned at last who continueth till war's trumpet is blown no more. Perseverance is therefore the target of all our spiritual enemies. The world does not object to your being a Christian for a time. If she can but tempt you to cease your pilgrimage 
and settle down to buy and sell with her in vanity, fair, the flesh will seek to ensnare you and prevent your pressing on to glory. It is weak work, uh, it is weary working, um, being a pilgrim. Come, give it up. Am I always to be mortified? Am I never to be indulged? Give me at last a furlough from this constant warfare, and Satan will make many a fierce attack on your perseverance. It will be the mark of for all his arrows. And so it's the attack that comes upon us daily as we walk with the Lord, as we are pilgrims with the Lord, as we're journeying through this world. The world looks at us and they say, man, just, just give it up. You know, the enemy, he wants to attack us. He wants us to give up. And sadly, our own flesh at times looks at circumstances around us and thinks, why don't I just give up? But it's in that time when the Lord speaks to us, you know, through apples of gold, a, a word fitly spoken. And the Lord says, hey, here's a cup of cold water. Go and, and have this second wind in my name and, and press forward because the Lord is doing something. He wants to work out his plan for, glory, for his glory and for our good. And so as we get into this letter, that's what we're going to look at. And so let's begin um, in verse 1. We're going to kind of break down verses 1 and 2 um, together. Let's begin by talking about the author here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter begins by addressing himself. It was a common thing in the first century when a person wrote they would address themselves at the beginning of the letter. We, you know, you know, address ourselves at the end, V slash R, very respectfully, or whatever it is. You know, and, and that's what Peter did here at the beginning. He addressed himself as Peter. Now, it's important to note that while Peter wrote this letter, some believe that Silas or Silvanus, um, who's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 12, maybe penned this letter. And if you read commentaries, you know, and you read background of, uh, of this letter, Scholars will spend all the time talking about how Peter's style of Greek is different than, you know, than his other letter and stuff like that. And I was like, well, who cares? Maybe Sylvanus wrote it, you know, with him. I mean, Peter gave him, dictated him the words. It was his letter, but he might have wrote it. But either way, I mean, you know, we know it's Peter's letter. Now, Peter introduced himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I like that because Peter, he refers to himself by the name given to him by Christ. And also he refers to his calling in Christ. Now, we all know Peter's original name was Simon, and the Lord often used it many times, Simon, Simon. Usually when Peter messed up, he was like, oh, Simon, Simon, kind of thing. But the Lord gave him a new name, and this new name was Rock. In Aramaic, it was Cephas, or in Greek, it was Peter, and that's what it meant. It meant rock. And just as Christ promised, Peter became the rock and a pillar in the church of Jesus Christ. The Lord was able to work this in Peter's life. And so Peter really is a testimony of God's grace writing to these believers. You see, Peter, you know, people make jokes about Peter, but he's just like us, really, if you think about it. You know, he was walking with the Lord, doing good in the Gospels, and then he'll make a mistake, and then the Lord will restore him. He'll, he'll be doing good, and then he makes a mistake. Seems like he's on that roller coaster. And then even in the book of Acts, we see that mistake of him, you know, withdrawing from the Gentiles, and Peter and or, um, Paul and Galatians kind of checks him on that. But yet he repents, and, you know, and, and he gets back on track. But you know, in the end here, Peter is, is a rock. And that's such an encouragement for you and I as believers, because while sometimes it seems like our life is like a roller coaster, we're up and down, up and down, up and down, the Lord's not done with you yet. He wants to make you a rock. He wants to make you a pillar, someone who can stand strong as a testimony of his grace through all the world. And we fall, but it's the righteous person who gets back up. And the Lord wants to continue to, to change you and, and wash you off and cleanse you. And that's what the Lord did with Peter. He didn't give up. And 
and, and he became a rock in a, in a pillar. And he's going to give great encouragement to these um, believers here. Also, Peter refers to his calling as an apostle. Peter was one of the 12 that was chosen by the Lord. And the criteria to be part of this 12 was they had to be with Jesus from the baptism of John. They had to be with Jesus throughout his whole three and a half year ministry. They had to see him resurrected from the dead. Then they had to see him ascended to heaven. And so Peter met this criteria. When Judas fell, they elected uh, Matthias in his place because he also met that criteria. So that's what it took to be part of the 12, the apostles. Now, there's another group of apostles that Paul fit into. And the criteria was this, was that they had to be commissioned by the risen Christ. They had to see him risen and be commissioned. And, and Paul uh, fit that. Now, the apostles were used by the Lord to work alongside of the prophets to lay down the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. We see that in Ephesians 2.20. And so they were sent with authority. That's what the word apostle means, one who is sent with authority. And they were sent with this message of God to go out, and they laid the foundational teachings of what it is to be a Christian. You see, the believers knew about the Lord, and they knew the gospel, but it was really the apostles who were used by the Holy Spirit to lay down the teachings of what it is to actually be a Christian, to live this thing that we call, you know, Christianity. And they did, used by the Lord to press forward. Now, I like that Peter refers to himself as an apostle because it shows us that being an apostle was not something that he just did. It wasn't just a hat he wore, you know, every Wednesday and Sunday, but it was really who he was. And it's a good encouragement for you and I as we serve the Lord to remember that who we are in Christ is who we are. It's not just something that we do every now and then, but it's who the Lord wants us to be. Paul reminded Timothy of that in 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 16. He says, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to doctrine. Continue in them. And in doing this, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. You see, the Lord has a calling for each one of our lives. It's a specific gift and calling. And he wants us to give ourselves entirely over to it. The Lord doesn't want us to be partial with it. He doesn't want us just to wear the hat on certain days, but he wants us to give ourselves over to it. And that's what Peter recognized himself as. He was a rock. He was a pillar. But he was also a servant of the Lord who gave himself entirely over to serve God. Now, the date that Peter wrote this letter was probably around 64 to 65 AD. And this was an important time from history because this was the time when a man by the name of Caesar Nero was ruling in Rome. Now, most of you that know a little bit about history know that Caesar Nero wasn't all there. He was kind of a short crown, you know, of a box kind of thing, you know, or missing a couple screws. He was crazy, and he didn't like Christians. One example of that was when he lit the city of Rome on fire then blamed it on the Christians. And some believe that he did that around this time, around 64 to 65. And so Peter maybe was writing this letter before that, and that when it came out, that was happening. So things were starting to escalate. But either way, the, um, you know, the cabinet of their government wasn't the best you know, kind of around. But yet Peter's going to write to them and say, submit to the government. The world was decaying around them, but yet the, you know, the Lord was going to continue to work through them. And so this is kind of the background, the historical context of, of when they were receiving this letter. It was a time in which Christians were going to start being persecuted. Now, the people who received this letter... We're told at the end of verse 1, we're to the pilgrims of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and um, 
Bithynia. Now, the recipients of this letter were the elect pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, this is kind of technical, but it's, it's, it's important to know. The New King James Version, as other translations, has the word elect there in verse 2. So it's, it's there. But some of you that might have the English Standard Version have the word elect there with the word pilgrim or sojourner. It says to the elect pilgrim or sojourner. This is because I'm told by Greek scholars that actually that word elect is actually in verse 1 in, in the Greek text. And so this is important because it, it kind of talks about and gives us background on exactly what Peter was, was talking about here. So this being the case, since the word elect is actually in verse 1 with the word sojourners and pilgrims, it shows us that this word elect does not describe how or why God chose these believers, but the fact that they were chosen out of the world by God. And so Peter's not, not really worried about going in super in-depth on explaining their election. He's just saying, hey, guys, yeah, you're elect. And you're elect sojourners. And that's all he's saying. He's not going into um, you know, how or why God chose them. Now, if you want to learn more about the doctrine of election, because it's a hot controversy, um, you can read Pastor Gene's study on 1 Thessalonians 2.13 called The Election Days. And this study does a real good job of talking about some of the areas where Christians disagree and kind of talks about our view. But since we mentioned the word elect in election, let me just say a couple things, kind of in a, in a way of a quick summary concerning election. We do know from, the, from this scripture that the basis of election does include both God's foreknowledge and his sovereign will. Also, we know that the Bible teaches that Christ died for all men and God desires that all men to be saved. And so Christ is the savior of all men. And so God wants all people to be saved. Not only that, but God through the cross has made it possible for all people to be saved. Through the cross of Christ, God's grace has went to all mankind to where if we respond to God's grace, we can be saved. Whosoever will come to the Lord will be saved. And so with putting these things together, we can say the following. Election is God's sovereign choice in eternity past to elect or save all those to whom he foreknows will respond to his grace and be in Christ. And so since we're in Christ, we're God's elect. So if you've put your faith in Christ, well, then you're God's elect. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, well, then you're not God's elect. But you can be God's elect. All you have to do is respond to God's grace. Whosoever will believe, and if you believe, you'll be saved. And so it's real simple, really. And, you know, I just want to get back to the fact that Peter was writing to people who were persecuted. Just remember that. He was writing to people who were persecuted. You know, he wasn't throwing out what they call pub theology. And sadly, there is such a thing out there today. And it wasn't just something that they were just bringing out to debate about and argue about. Nor was Peter writing this to a think tank of seminary students who were going to take this and just start, you know, debating and fighting over it. Peter was writing to normal believers who were in the thick of things. He was writing to believers who were in the midst of trials and times of discouragement. And this doctrinal truth, rather than causing them to debate, would have been a great encouragement. Because in light of the fact that they were rejected by the world around them, they could understand and know that the God whom they are serving has actually chose them. He was on their side. He loved them. From eternity past, because they were in Christ by grace through faith, God had chose them. And this would serve as a great encouragement to the elect sojourners. He said, hey guys, yeah, you're in the midst of the world. The world's rejected you, but you know what? You're sojourning for the Lord, and, he's, and, and he loves you. He chose you. So not only were these believers just elect, but they were pilgrims, the elect pilgrims. 
Now, the word pilgrim uh, means both uh, temporary residents and those who are journeying towards a homeland. This is both literal and spiritual. For example, their literal meaning is the fact that they were dispersed throughout this entire area of Asia Minor. The word dysphoria or, um, or dispersion is actually the word scattered. And so um, this is actually a technical term. It was used of the Jews in the Gospels and also in the Old Testament. You see, when Rome um, came and, and persecuted them, um, you know, during this time, they, they would be scattered. But also, even before that, Babylon, when they came, they also scattered the Jews in the Old Testament. And so because of Israel's sin, because of Judah's sin, God brought judgment and they were scattered from their homeland. They were carried to Babylon. They were, carrying to, they were carried to Assyria. And so anytime a Jew didn't live in their homeland, they would be, have been considered a Jew of the dispersion. And so the writers of the New Testament got a hold of that same truth, and they applied it to the Christians who were being persecuted by both Rome and also the Jews. For example, James referred to the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad. He refers to these Jews who were scattered throughout um, the world. Also, the writer of Hebrews talks about this as well. Now, I believe Peter wrote to Jews, but not specifically to just Jews, because as we're going to see as we go through this letter, he's going to mention some things that can't really apply to Jews, like you were not a people of God, but now you are. And so that would cause some problems if he was just writing to Jews alone. And so he's referring to Christians here. Anybody who's a believer, both Jew and Gentile, a Gentile is a non-Jew, and these people, because they're persecuted, were scattered from their homeland to these different areas of these um, Roman provinces. There's five mentioned here in this verse, and this is the area of modern Turkey today, northern Turkey. Now, there's also a spiritual meaning that we can apply to our life, and that is all Christians, in a sense, are actually pilgrims as we press through this world. You see, when we as everyone accepts Christ, we all become citizens of heaven. So this world is no longer our home anymore. We no longer belong to this world. Now we're foreigners. We live among a foreign people with weird customs and weird cultures. So we're foreigners. And that's what we are as we journey towards heaven. Now the fact that we're pilgrims journeying towards heaven d didn't begin here in this letter or in the New Testament, but actually began all the way back in the Old Testament. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, but by faith he dwelt in the promise, in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, and they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so all the way back in the Old Testament, believers who were following after the Lord's righteousness understood that they were pilgrims, that they were journeying through this world looking forward to a city in heaven whose maker and builder is God. And that's the same which is true for us today. You see, the life of faith and the life of promise is not to build our own kingdom here on earth, nor is it to seek, as these health and wealth teachers say today, to live 
the best life now. But we need to realize and recognize that we're pilgrims. And only as we realize that this earth is not our home, that we're just passing through, that these bodies are nothing but tents, perishing, will we truly experience the true will of God and, and what he wants for our life. These are the things the writer of Hebrews says that please God, recognizing that this world is not our home. So in the midst of this, Peter goes on and gives them some comfort to walk as pilgrims. Verse 2, we made it to verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge. We'll, we'll move faster once we get past the introduction in the coming weeks, I guarantee you. But for now, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, as I said, since the word elect, I'm told in the Greek text, I don't know Greek, but the, all the scholars teach it, so we, we can trust them. You know, the word elect is actually in verse 1. This phrase is to be understood in connection with the fact that these are pilgrims sojourning through the world. And so it was their sojourning, the fact that they were pilgrims in the world that was foreknown by God. And this would have been, once again, a great encouragement to these believers. You see, they were experiencing tough times, specifically being scattered from their homes, but they could know that it wasn't coming as a surprise to God. God didn't say, oh man, really? That's happening to you right now? God knew that. And Peter says that it's our God and Father who knows that. You see, God is all-powerful. And so God foreknew these things. He understood them, and he even allowed them in his sovereignty. The reason why he allowed them is because he's our Father. He's our God and Father. And God had a good purpose behind these things. As we'll see in verse 6 of chapter 1, God was allowing these things to strengthen their faith so in the end they would be found praiseworthy and to stand in honor in front of him. You know, as parents, sometimes we have to make decisions that our kids don't like, right? That are tough. But yet, because we love our kids, we know that, you know, that we have to do certain things and allow certain things. In the same way, these believers can be encouraged to know, hey, listen, your father knows what you're going through. And in his sovereignty, he has allowed it because he knows all things and, and, and he has a good purpose behind it. While we might not see the good purpose and we shouldn't really try to find out what that good purpose is, we should just trust God knowing that he's able to work all things together for good for those who love him and, and are called according to purpose. When, when we stand in front of the Lord and we stand praiseworthy and in honor and in glory, we'll think, okay, that's why God allowed this and, and did that. But for now, we just need to walk by faith knowing that God is good and that he's our father and that he's taken us through this pilgrimage that we're journeying through here on earth. Verse 2, in sanctification of the spirit for obedience. So our salvation, Peter goes on and says, it's all a work of God, the spirit, from beginning to end. You see, before we were saved, the spirit was working on our hearts to convict us of sin, righteousness, and, and judgment. You see, when we heard the gospel, it was the spirit behind the gospel that was convicting us, that was showing us our need for the Savior. And the moment we responded to God's grace and received the gospel, the Spirit then came and lived in us, and we became born again. We became a new creation in Christ. We, we became regenerated. That means that our spiritual nature, which was dead in trespasses and sins, which was once separated from God, now became alive in the Lord. But the work doesn't stop there. God is now continuing to daily sanctify us as believers, which means to change us daily into the image of Christ. God the Spirit is working in us to make us more like Jesus, to transform us from glory to glory by His Spirit. How does He do this? Well, He uses the Word of God, and He uses our circumstances of life. 
One um, Bible teacher uses the illustration of a hammer and a chisel. The Word of God, the Bible says, is like a hammer, and our circumstances of life are like a chisel. And the Lord daily is chiseling us, making us into something beautiful for His glory and for His honor. It's all by the work of the Spirit. And the way He does it as we, is as we journey through this life as a pilgrim. Now, God's ultimate desire for us is that we'd be obeying Him, that we'd walk in obedience to His Word and His will. So from a human perspective, when we look at trials and, and tribulations and troubles, we think that they're actually going to cause us to not be obedient to the Lord, to turn our back on God. But that's not always what we see in the Scriptures. Sometimes, most of the time we see the other hand. For example, think of David when he was at home away from war. That's when he fell into sin. Think of the children of Israel when they went into the Promised Land and they stopped battling. That's when they fell into idolatry and pride. Now, I'm not saying that I want to suffer as a Christian. I mean, Jesus said it right when he said, hey, pray that the Lord lead us not into temptation, right? I mean, to really be humble, Lord, I don't want to go through, through trials, but the Lord is good and he knows what we can handle and, and what we need. But, you know, but the Lord knows that the perfect place for us to be is in his sanctifying will, for us to be in the center of that. And that's where we're going to grow as pilgrims by his grace. As we walk in the spirit, he's going to make us more like himself. And sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow, what does that mean? The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Really, if you read these verses together, it's like a mouthful. And you really have to break them down. In the Old Testament, when they established a covenant, they would have a sacrifice, and they would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the priest and on the, the people and on um, the covenant. So Peter was using this. The Jewish believers would understand this. It was a symbolic way of talking about the establishment of the covenant. You and I, when we give our life to Jesus, we accept the Lord into our life, we enter into the covenant of grace, this covenant that God has established with us through the cross. And by our faith, we're saved. As we walk with the Lord, we have the full privileges that we have received through the cross of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and also the continual cleansing of our sin. And so as we walk through this life, we mess up, we, we make mistakes, but the Lord's grace is always there to forgive us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word there I'm told, cleanse, is to continually cleanse. The Lord continually cleanses us as we walk in his word, in his grace. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's been described as getting what you don't deserve. We first of all receive grace to the cross. As God sent his son Jesus to be lifted up for us, to draw all men to himself, our will was freed so that we are able to make a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also God's grace doesn't stop there. It continues to go with us as the spirit goes with us as we walk with the Lord. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, God's grace is there to empower us, to help us. Think about Paul when he prayed that God would deliver him from this thorn in his flesh. Whatever it was, it could have been an eye disease. We, know, we don't know exactly what it was. It could have been some kind of physical suffering. And he prayed three times, Lord, take this away from me. And the Lord came to him and said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So he recognized that it was through God's grace, this specific empowering that the Lord would give him, this unmerited favor that God would give him specifically to meet his trial. And as we pilgrim, we're going to experience hard times, as Peter's going to tell us. But yet we can know that God's grace can come specifically, notice, to you personally in, in multiplied ways in abundance as we seek the Lord.
With grace comes peace. Peace is the opposite of worry and anxiety. It's an inner rest in the presence and power of God. So as we recognize that our God is great and our God is good, we can have peace and and rest multiplied to us specifically as we walk with the Lord. So we're just scratching the surface in this letter here to Peter and from Peter to us. We're going to continue on uh, next week. But for now, my prayer is that as we continue to go through this letter, that you and I would be encouraged and exhorted to press forward tonight and every day as pilgrims of the Lord. Amen. Amen.